brave man who defied monarchs and brought religious reform to his country said, I never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. I must confess this morning that I share Knox's sentiments concerning this weighty task of preaching. I tremble because I know how important it is for Christians to be nourished from God's word, and I hope to be able to do that this morning. I tremble because I have such high respect for this church, for its leaders, for its members, and I've been benefited so much from the ministry of this fellowship. But I especially tremble because my in-laws are sitting <laughs> in the very front row watching me. Imagine what lunch will be like. <laughs> Many of you probably know the Freiburg family. In July of 2020, I was privileged to have been formally grafted in, as Elizabeth likes to say. I not only found a wife, a loving, loyal, beautiful wife, but I found a second family. Scott and Elizabeth, members of this church for over 28 years, 28 years, have been especially encouraging to me in my walk with Christ, and I would not be here with you today if it weren't for them, and I love you all dearly. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, you can find that on page 809 in the Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 4, and when you're there, please say amen, amen, you can say amen during the sermon, just so you know, Matthew chapter 4, we'll read the first 11 verses, I'll be reading in the ESV, Matthew chapter 4, hear now the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put your Lord, the Lord God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Our Father, your word is truth. Please sanctify us in the truth. Let the words now of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, in this short time, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. 
In the year 1033, one of the most significant and impactful theologians of the Middle Ages was born. He was extraordinarily intelligent. Some call him the father of scholasticism, since he is known for his clear, careful, and critical argumentation. His prayerful declaration that God is that which nothing greater can be conceived, otherwise known as the ontological argument for God, has been discussed and debated by philosophers and theologians for centuries. Towards the end of his life, he would later ascend a prominent position in the church at that time, becoming the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093. This medieval theologian's name was Anselm, and I give credit to Sinclair Ferguson for introducing him to me in this book, In the Year of Our Lord, Reflections on 20 Centuries of Church History, a book I highly recommend to become more acquainted with great figures of the past. Well, one of Anselm's most significant works was entitled Cur Deus Homo. Cur Deus Homo. Literally from the Latin translated as Why the God-Man. Why the God-Man. Of course, he's referring to Jesus, who by that time had been confessed to be in the church, both vera Deus, vera Homo. Truly God and truly man. Anselm was seeking greater understanding into the nature of the atonement, Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. No doubt reflecting on scripture and the creeds of the ancient church, Anselm recognized the overwhelming importance of Jesus's humanity and his divinity. An interesting question, isn't it? Curdeus homo, why the God-man? Have you ever thought about why God became man? What, what purpose does God becoming a man serve? And could it have been otherwise? Couldn't God just simply pass over our sins, just forget them, without taking on a human nature? Could any mere man, apart from divinity, like you or I, take the punishment for sins? Well, only the perfection of God himself could satisfy his own wrath against sin. The Bible makes clear that man is dead in sin and not even capable of choosing to attempt reconciliation with his maker. But as this wrath is directed towards humanity, only man could right the wrong. Humanity in the image of God is who must be judged. As Athanasius, the fourth century bishop of Alexandria declared, that which has not been assumed has not been redeemed. And so in short, Anselm's answer to Curdeus Homo was this. Only God could have endured the full penalty for our sins, and only a man could be an appropriate substitute in our place to represent us. Okay, so Jesus had to be a man. But here's another question. Why couldn't Jesus just show up one day out of the blue at the cross? What if Jesus fell out of the sky on the appropriate day of his crucifixion and died for us? Would that be enough? Was the crucifixion all that needed to take place? Well, the answer is no. Because in order to truly set us free from sin, he not only had to die in our place, he also had to live in our place. He had to live. His, his death covers our sins, yes, but that only solves one side of the equation. We need not only forgiveness, but we need righteousness in order to be right with God. To use a financial metaphor, we need to have our $5 million mortgage canceled 
And then we need to win the lottery. We need to go from negative to positive. God's holiness demands a perfect righteousness for fellowship with him. And there's no way we can do that on our own. But Jesus' life, his righteousness lived out in real time as the God-man is that righteousness for all who trust him. Jesus was the perfect son of God who lived in our place so that when our sins are credited to Christ at the cross, it doesn't stop there. His righteousness that he attained when he walked this earth in our shoes is credited to us as well. And so Jesus didn't have to just be a man in order to represent us. He had to be a just man, a righteous man, an, an obedient man. As the God-man, Jesus was an obedient substitute for us. And theologians distinguish between two types of obedience that Christ enacted. The first is what's called active obedience. Active obedience. I would have you write that down. I think it's an incredible important word. Christ actively, intentionally, and completely fulfilled the law in doing righteousness and resisting temptation on our behalf. And we'll return to the second kind of obedience shortly. But in this passage, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, this is what we see. The Son of God, Veridaeus, Vera Homo, truly God and truly man, we see him and his active obedience in resisting temptation from the enemy on display for all to witness. And how will we see that? Three points. We'll see an obedient man, we'll see an obedient Israel, and we'll see an obedient Adam. And I want you to think of these three points as layers of a pyramid. Layers of, of a pyramid. An obedient man, an obedient Israel, and an obedient Adam. Jesus was a man, as this text makes clear. And as a man, he enters into the biblical narrative of the people of God, Israel, to succeed where they failed. Indeed, this failure goes all the way back to the garden where a son of God succumbed to the temptation of a serpent. Jesus experiences true temptation from that serpent, the devil, but instead obeys the word of God and trusts the Father, revealing himself to be the true, eternal son of God, the new Adam. As the last Adam, he can be a better representative and bestow righteousness upon all who trust him. It's an obedient man, an obedient Israel, and an obedient Adam. First, an obedient man. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The scriptures testify that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a man. Look at his hunger there in verse 2. Men get hungry, amen? <laughs> I know I get hungry. See the angels ministering to him there in, in his weariness in verse 11 after resisting the devil. He was weary. He needed the angels to attend to him. His temptations by Satan were those involving human dispositions. Hunger in verse 3. Satan says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Men eat bread. He, he gives him a threat of human death. In verse 6, throw yourself down. 
and the direction of his worship there in verse 9, fall down and worship me, but Jesus resists them all. One pastor says this, the New Testament is clear enough that Jesus has a human body. John 1, 14 means at least this and more. The word became flesh. His humanity became one of the first tests of orthodoxy. He was born, he grew, he grew tired and got thirsty and hungry. He became physically weak. He died and he had a real human body after his resurrection. Jesus Christ was and still is truly a man with skin, flesh, bones, will, and emotions. He didn't just look like a man. Well, why does any of that matter? So what? First, because Christ is a man, as we've already seen from Anselm, Christ can be our only mediator. Our only mediator. I want you to picture a large chasm. Large chasm. Both sides are incredibly far apart from one another. And there's a bridge across that chasm. My civil engineering degree now is only good for sermon illustrations. <laughs> I spent a lot of time looking at bridges and studying them, looking at forces. There is so much that goes into making a functional bridge. But you don't need a civil engineering degree to know that a bridge that doesn't go all the way to both sides is useless. You may have needed one if you went to UVA, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> right, Morgan? <laughs> There's a great chasm between us and God. And we have no hope of bridging that chasm ourselves. But Jesus is our bridge to God. Not just because he is God, but because he is also man. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus can save you because he walked in your shoes. He experienced every living bit of humanity that we did, and he can represent you perfectly before the Father because he was a man and he was obedient. Secondly, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. A well-known text, Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Friends, he says, I know what it's like. I know temptation. I know what it's like to be weak, to be tempted by the enemy, to distrust God or to find pleasure in other things. What are you struggling with today? Name your temptations, your pain, your shame, your distress. He says, I, I know it all. He knows them. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He can sympathize. He can sympathize. What other God can say this? What other religion says that God became man out of love for his creation? Every other system of belief expects man to reach the divine, to attain some level of transcendence. But the true and living God, the only God who is love, our God, came to us. He came for people like you 
and like me, men and women. One set of commentators highlights the ironies found in Matthew's gospel. I won't cite the verses, but you can look for them yourself later, perhaps. Jesus was hungry, but he fed others. He grew weary, but offered rest. He is the King Messiah, but offers tribute. Some called him the devil, but he casted out demons. He died a sinner's death, but came to save sinners. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, but gives his life as a ransom for many. He will not turn stones to bread, but offers his own body, a human body, as bread for others. Jesus was an obedient man. And because he was a man, he could be, secondly, an obedient Israel. An obedient Israel. Have you ever wondered why there are four Gospels? Why four? Why not just one? Or even two? Why four accounts of the same events? Well, each Gospel is much like the different side of a diamond. Different facet. Same Jesus, but different angle, different emphasis of his person. One scholar notes the differences between the Gospels this way. Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering Son of God. Luke portrays him as the Savior of all nations, all peoples. John reveals that Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus is divine, co-equal with God. Matthew, overwhelmingly so, is concerned with the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Consider Jesus' own statement in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Other scholars have noted that Matthew portrays Jesus as fulfilling the Old Testament in at least 23 different ways. Here are just some. His flight from Herod alludes to Israel's flight from Egypt. His baptism alludes to Israel's passing through the Red Sea. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount reflects Moses' teaching on the mountain. We could go on and on, but in this text, Matthew 4, the setting of Jesus' temptation alludes to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness, see there in verse 1. Notice he fasted, verse 2, 40 days and 40 nights mirroring Israel's punishment. But though there is significant similarity, there is also a clear distinction between Israel and Christ. While Israel was punished, Jesus willingly submits himself to this difficulty. While Israel failed to follow the Lord's leading, we see here in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted. And so God is in control. This is all according to plan. Jesus is on a mission, as he said at his baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. Which means, among other things, succeeding where Israel failed. Israel had God himself leading him out of Egypt. He spoke to them directly. He sheltered them from Pharaoh and crushed all their enemies. Still they grumbled and longed for the days when they could be under Egypt's burden once again. Not so with Christ. He obeyed. 
He obeyed the Lord's leading. All over the Old Testament, Exodus 4, 22 is just one place where you'll see it. Israel is designated as a son of God. A son of God. But they failed to live in perfect harmony with God. They were idolaters. And so the true, eternal, obedient son of God enters into the story and succeeds where the previous son of God failed being no less tempted than before. You see there, even Satan attempts to mirror Christ's connection to the Jewish story when he cites Psalm 91, verse 6. In essence, he's saying, trust in God, Jesus. Trust in God as the scriptures tell you to. Remember the Jewish scriptures, Jesus. But Jesus sees right through the lie and the manipulation. In fact, each of Jesus' responses are citations from Deuteronomy, one of which we read this morning. These are scriptures directly related to Israel's failure. So what does this mean for us? Well, first, I think we should have a caution about interpretation. A caution about interpretation. Often, when we come to this passage, we are simplistically encouraged to just do as Jesus does. Fight temptation with Scripture. Many commentaries say this. Jesus memorized Scripture, and so should you. Now, don't get me wrong. That is not a bad thing to do. It's not a bad thing to store up the promises of God in your heart and be reminded of them in your darkest moments. But it can be a bit simplistic. An immediate desire to do as Jesus did can sometimes miss the narrative elements which reveal the most about who he is. And unwittingly, we can miss the point of the entire text, which is that Jesus obeyed God's word when Israel, and in effect you and I, have not. He is an obedient Israel, the true son of God. And so memorizing scripture is indeed beneficial, but not without recognizing who it's about. Not without first seeing who the entire story points to. And so especially in narratives, we should read our Bibles with both Testaments open, looking for themes and, and patterns and major ideas, not merely for what we should just do. Only when we have made sufficient observation should we then move to appropriate application. Secondly, for to know Christ, we must know God's word. And to know God's word, we must know Christ. To know Christ, we must know God's word. And to know God's word, we must know Christ. Luke 24, 27 says this. It recounts what Jesus did on the Emmaus Road following his resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... And that's just a euphemism for the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The story of redemption, indeed the entire Bible, finds its understanding in Jesus. As Augustine puts it, the new is in the old concealed and the old in the new revealed. So Christian... If the Old Testament is about Christ, what do you know a lot about? What do you spend time doing or studying or learning, either explicitly or implicitly? Think of it this way. If you were playing a game of trivia or Jeopardy, what category would you really excel at? TV shows, 
movies, sports, social media trends, the latest fashion, coffee, gardening, backpacking. What about the scriptures? Are you intimately, thankfully, familiar with the scriptures? Is the Bible a priority to you? Or have other things captured your attention? Your leisure, your lifestyle, your accolades? Friends, what I'm really asking you is what do you love? What do you love? For we spend time thinking and discussing and studying what we love. I simply ask, what could possibly be more important than seeing Christ, the glory of the invisible God, in the scriptures, than understanding and studying the wealth of material we have that foreshadows him? And don't hear me wrong. We shouldn't just know a lot of facts about Jesus. My time in seminary, I've come to realize there are thousands of unbelieving Old Testament and New Testament scholars. They know a ton about the Bible. But they don't love Christ. They view it as an intellectual exercise. No, we should ongoingly become familiar with the scriptures in order to know the one to whom they point to. To put it this way, I can know a lot about a figure of history, say Abraham Lincoln, and not really know him, not really know him personally. But I can't say that I spend much time with someone, say my wife, and not begin to learn about her. If you ask me what my, favorite, my wife's favorite foods were, or what she likes to do in her spare time, what her opinion is about X, Y, and Z, and I didn't know, then you might be tempted to ask if I really spend a whole lot of time with her. Knowing Christ in the Old Testament is simply one way in which we become more familiar with him. And it's a lifetime process. I'm sure some of you here who have been married for decades would say, I'm still finding new things out about my spouse, even after 40, 50, 60 years. May it be the same with Jesus. May we always come back to the scriptures to learn more about him in order to love him more. And so are you content knowing what you basically know about Christ? Have you exhausted all that there is to know about Christ in the scriptures? And if not, take up and read. Take up and read. May your Sunday morning sermon not be the most in-depth time with the word every week. Do as, script, as uh, Spurgeon recommended and be walking Bibles. For he said, Bible study is the metal that makes a Christian. This is the strong meat on which holy men are nourished. This is that which makes the bone and sinew of men who keep God's way in defiance of every adversary. John Piper uses this illustration. If we knew there was a buried chest of gold in our backyard, who among us would not grab a shovel and start digging this afternoon? Well, there's a far greater treasure in the Bible for us to find. For it contains a treasure that cannot be destroyed or lost or stolen. What will you store up to be burned on the day of judgment? Or what, will it reap for you a harvest of salvation in knowing your one and only Savior? 
There is so much in the Old Testament that prepares us for Christ. He is the better Noah who saves not just one family, but millions from the waters of judgment. He is the better Isaac, sacrificed on Mount Moriah for the sins of his people. He is the better Moses, one who not only instructs with truth, but gives the ability to obey by fulfilling the law's obligation for us. He is the better David, king, ruler, and defender of his subjects. He is the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 who came to crush the head of the serpent. For Jesus, number three, was an obedient Adam. An obedient Adam. Again, where one son of God succumbs to the serpent's deception, the true son of God remains unmoved. This temptation narrative comes off the heels of Jesus' baptism. There we hear his identity expressly set forth by the Father, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And such is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where the kingly son of God would triumph and all of his enemies would bow before him. But Satan questions this identity in verse 3 and verse 6, where he says, "If, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, Satan is tempting Jesus by calling into question God's own declaration of his identity. The devil's only doing what he's done from the beginning. He's twisting the word of God. He questions the character of God as he did in the garden by asking Eve, did God really say? Did God really say, if you are the son of God, Jesus? He is seeking to undermine that which is most precious to the father. And I think verse 8 and 9 are especially telling. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, Satan is once again tempting a son of God to worship self. As he said to Adam and Eve, you will be like God. Well, where the first son of God failed to heed the word of God, we see that in Genesis 3. Jesus, here in Matthew 4, the true Son of God, obeyed God's word, responding three times with the emphatic statement, it is written. He overcame, as one pastor puts it, the temptation of self-gratification, then self-protection, and finally self-glorification. And in doing so, Jesus takes us not only back to Israel, but all the way back to the garden to reverse what Adam set in motion. Jesus was obedient where Adam was not, and in doing so, commanded Satan to be gone. So Jesus was a man, and then he became a better Israel, which ultimately means he's a better Adam. But why? Why do we need a new Adam? Why does any of this matter? Well, we need a better representative. We need a better Representative. The gospel hinges on this very idea of representation. Some theologians call it federal headship. Consider two passages that speak to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Or Romans 5, 17 through 19. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you see that link there between Adam and Christ? They function as representatives of two distinct groups with two distinct trajectories. Time Magazine is famous for naming a person of the year. They range from presidents to pop culture enthusiasts to climate activists to even you in 2006, if you didn't know that. So who do you think they should pick for maybe all of history? The entirety of the human race. Who is the most important person that ever lived? Well, I contest that there are two. Adam and Christ. Because according to Scripture, those two men determine the eternal destiny of every person who ever lived. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, this is the story of Scripture. Because of the fall by virtue of Adam's failure and our connection to him as his seed, we are born in sin. We inherit a sin nature from Adam, the failed son of God. And we are, Romans 5, condemned in Adam. Our only hope is to receive a new nature from the obedient son of God, to be found in Christ, to be justified according to his righteousness. This is the gospel. And this means that you can't be saved by anything else can't be saved by church membership or even attendance. You might have been a member of this church as long as Scott and Elizabeth have, or longer. That's not what saves you. To be sure, being a part of a healthy local church is an indication that you take seriously what it means to be a part of Christ's body. And if you haven't done so, I would urge you to become an accountable member of a healthy local church such as this immediately. But never forget it's Christ first and then the church. Not the other way around. The church is called the body of Christ in Ephesians 1. And you can't be united to the body without the head. Children, teens, young adults with parent members of this church, you may even be a son or daughter of one of the elders. Family faith does not save you. Family faith does not save you. Because when you were born into this world, you were born in Adam. You were born in Adam. Your connection to him and your sins that accompany it are all it takes to condemn you. You must be born again. 
Born from above, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must trust Christ and nothing else for salvation. Not your family, not your church, not your good works. Only Jesus has the power to save you. A hymn I love says this, No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. May that be your prayer. What can Jesus do as the Son of God, as the true Son of God, as the true representative apart from Adam? What does salvation entail? One word. Sonship. Sonship. Jesus re restores us to true sonship. Jesus, as the better son of God, brings many sons to glory. In Christ, we are adopted. Adopted as sons and daughters. And now God can be our father. Consider Paul speaking to other saints in the letter to the Ephesians who said, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus went first before us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. A true child of God is one who has Christ as his older brother. The true obedient son of God whose righteousness allows them to be adopted into God's family and enjoy all the benefits that come with that. He renews us in the image of God, marred in the garden. And so, just to simply conclude, Jesus was actively obedient during his time on earth throughout his entire ministry, but especially so here in Matthew 4 during his temptation. As a man... He experienced every temptation we do, yet without sin. He can perfectly sympathize with us. As Israel, he fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. He is the one who the scriptures testify would save his people from their sins. In Christ, God enters into the story that he has been telling for centuries. And as an obedient Adam, he maintains the righteousness we need be reconciled to God and receive new life. He is the better representative of a redeemed human race. But you remember at the beginning, I said theologians distinguish between two kinds of obedience. Active obedience, yes. At one point in Jesus' life, his active obedience, his lived righteousness would shift. He would then become what theologians designate as passively obedient. He would, he would have passive obedience. But that's, that doesn't mean in the sense that he was indifferent or apathetic. No, passive. He would become obedient in enduring a death on the cross. A death for which he did not deserve, but subjected himself to willingly. His fulfilling the righteousness required of humanity would soon become his enduring the punishment deserved by humanity. 
And he would be obedient even in that act. Passive obedience. You see there in verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him. But he would return. He would enter Judas to betray Jesus. The perfect, sinless, merciful Son of God would then be unjustly crucified on a Roman criminal's cross where disobedient men like you and I belong and buried in a tomb. But on the third day, on the third day, he would rise again from the dead, a picture of his vindication, revealing that indeed his death was unjust, undeserved by one such as him, and that his active obedience was accepted by God. And now all those who acknowledge their sin, their fallen humanity in Adam, turn from it and trust in Christ for salvation, will indeed be resurrected with him in power. So have you lived by bread alone? Have you put God to the test? Have you worshipped anything other than God? All us sinners must say, yes, we have. Yes, we have. We are condemned, hopeless, without God's intervention, crushed under the burden of our inability. But the good news is that Jesus has not bowed the knee to Satan. We have a perfect, resurrected Savior, the Son of God who is obedient on our behalf. Turn from your sin and live for him. My favorite hymn is called And Can It Be That I Should Gain by Charles Wesley something I've asked for us to sing in a moment. I simply close with this line. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Please bow your heads and pray with me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? O oh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, divine, you did not merely die for us. You lived for us. Thank you for taking on flesh, for condescending to sinful humanity by taking the form of a humble servant. And thank you for your obedience, a righteousness that you promised to bestow upon and justify the ungodly who trust you and turn from their wickedness. Lord, if there is anyone here today or that can hear my voice, from the youngest to the oldest among us that does not know you, that remains in Adam, may they be found in Christ and him alone. Help all of us to be enthralled at the beauty of Jesus in his vicarious life for us forevermore. Amen. Amen.